Well, good morning, everyone. Well, it's one day before Christmas. Is there anyone here brave enough to confess that they're not ready for Christmas morning? Okay, got a few hands. Well, I can expect that that's true. This has been an incredibly busy season. I found this one has been busier than most of the Christmas seasons I can remember, between the decorating and the cooking and the and the social events and the Christmas events, uh, church, it's been a very busy time. Um, and that's to say nothing about the time we spend actually looking for presents, right? You know, we spend time thinking about what we'd like to get people. We then spend time shopping, and I got to admit, I do most of my shopping online, so I don't spend as much time as some of you do. But we also spend time wrapping it. And the whole idea is that we would hopefully, when we give a present to somebody, we would get a reaction something like that. (laughs) And if you've been around Christmas time with kids, you know that it's just such a pleasurable time to see that joy that comes off of a surprise that's, that's very good for them. And probably if I asked most of you here, you'd be able to remember a present that did this for you somewhere in your past. The one I often think about for myself is uh, when I was about nine years old, I uh, couldn't sleep as a nine-year-old wouldn't on Christmas Eve, and so I went to the tree about three o'clock in the morning, and of course, I didn't open anything, but I did look, I did find out which presents were mine, did try to figure out what they were, but then just as I was doing that, around the corner, just away from the tree, I saw this bike. And this was beautiful. This was the first full bike I got. And I was so excited. And I was ready right then and there in my PJs to take this thing outside at 3 a.m. in the morning and drive around the neighborhood. But I didn't do that. But I was very excited. And then all of a sudden, my heart dropped. Anybody know why? Exactly. I have to fake the surprise in about four hours for my parents, right? So that I can give them the pleasure of this kind of a reaction. So... It, uh, I think I was successful in doing that. But sometimes, in spite of our best efforts, we, we end up uh, not quite hitting the mark with our presence. We end up more with a reaction like this. And perhaps you've given a present like this, or you've received a present like this, and, uh, and have had to try to suppress this kind of a, a reaction. Uh, the one that comes to mind for me is when I was 15 years old, uh, we used to get together with my parents' friends, and we'd be in a big circle, and we exchange gifts, and we would all open these up. And I opened up a gift, and it was uh, a soap on a rope. <laughs> now, if you're not old enough to remember what a soap on a rope is, it's pretty self-explanatory by the title, right? It's a bar of soap that had a rope that came around this, so you could hang it on the shower head, right? And You know, I I appreciated the fact that the people that gave it to me were really trying to be very practical with what they gave me, Uh, but I couldn't help thinking that maybe there was a message there for me about my personal hygiene, (laughs) right? So anyways, we don't always get it right, but but Christmas is a time of surprises and some, some surprises on Christmas morning. And it's very appropriate that as we celebrate the birth of Christ, we do it with surprises because the life of Christ was a very big surprise to the Jews themselves. 
We've been looking this last uh, Advent season, we've been looking, as uh, Kyle mentioned earlier today, at the prophecies and the names, prophetic names about Jesus. We looked at the line of Judah three weeks ago, and then the root of Jesse, and then last week, the morning star. So this week, we're looking at the Lamb of God. So why was this a surprise to the Jews? Um, Really, uh, you have to be able to look at the history of the Jews in order to try to get a little bit of a feel for that surprise. Um, actually, about three weeks ago, Pastor Tom went through the line of Judah, talked a lot about the history of the Jews as they went into Egypt, and then they ended up coming out of Egypt. God took them out of Egypt through Moses, brought them into the Promised Land. They, they were supposed to suppress and, and take over that land. They didn't do a really good job of that. So they eventually ended up, after a while, asking for a king. And then they got a king in Saul, and then David, and then Solomon. And then after that, the nation kind of split into two. There was a northern kingdom called Israel, and there was Judah to the south. And so neither one of these kingdoms really did a good job following God. Judah did a better job than Israel did. So God actually punished them. He first, he took away Israel in about 720 B.C. And the Assyrians were the power at that time. And so they came and swept through Israel, took away the northern kingdom, and their, their policy was really to disperse people. So they would disperse them throughout the, their, their uh, empire so that they lost their sense of nationality. But Judah lasted a little bit longer, about 600 B.C. Uh, the Babylonians, they, they kind of conquered the the Assyrians. And so after that, they came through and they laid siege to uh, Jerusalem and they took Jerusalem as the last vestige of the, the Judah that was remaining. And they, that was prophesied by God that that would happen. So they did that then and then they started removing the Jews from the Judah and taking them back to Babylon. And 70 years later, according to the prophecy that God had given, King Cyrus of Persia conquered Babylon and then almost immediately began to return the Jews to Judah and to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the wall. And you read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible. So after that, the Persians still ruled that part of the world and, and Judah for another 200 years until about 336 B.C., when Alexander the Great, at the age of 20, took over the Greek army. And he swept through all that area around the Mediterranean. And that didn't last very long. He, he took over Judah at that point in time. But he, uh, he only lasted about eight years after that. And then his kingdom got broken up into four pieces, given to four of his generals. And there was one piece that was right above, to the north of Israel in Syria, and there was one piece that was centered to the south of Israel in Egypt. And they kind of banged back and forth a couple of times as to who actually ruled over Judah. Uh, until the Seleucids, who were the guys in the north in the area of Syria, they started to try to remove the Jewish religion from, the, from Judah. So they actually uh, sacrificed a pig on the altar and the temple. They... Uh, they actually set up a, uh, an altar for Jupiter in the temple there as well. They, they burned scrolls. They, they just really oppressed the people, trying to get rid of the religion that Judah had. Well, this caused a revolt. And Mattathias was uh, a priest 
at that point in time. And he and his five sons led a revolt that uh, in 165 BC, they actually freed up the temple and began temple worship again. And that's what people celebrate when Hanukkah is celebrated. They celebrate that freeing up of the temple at that point in time. And they actually ruled themselves for about 100 years after that. But then, in 63 BC, the Romans came through. And they took over there, and so they took over, and they were still ruling when Jesus was, was born and all throughout the life of Jesus. So of those last 600 years before Christ, 500 of them were ruled by someone else. So they were, they were a nation that had been ruled by a lot of people. So what did actually did the, uh, the Jews expect from a Messiah? Messiah is the, is the Hebrew word, is taken from the Hebrew word that means anointed. It's the same word in Greek that means Christ. So from the Messiah, they expected several things. And if it's the same thing as if you tried to ask someone in Canada today, what, what's your opinion on something, you would get a wide range of opinions. And many people would fall into different categories. Same thing if you'd ask the Jews at a time of Jesus what they expected the Messiah, they would have a few different answers. Many of them would have thought about a prophet in the line of Moses, similar to Moses, and that's uh, prophesied about in Deuteronomy. Some would look for the return of Elijah that's prophesied in Micah. Some would be looking for uh, a priest in the order of Melchizedek that's talked about in Psalms. But most of them looked for that Lion of Judah. Most of them looked for that uh, root of Jesse, the, the, the leader, the ruler, the king that would come from the, the line of David. And so most of them were expecting that. Some of them expected a spiritual deliverance, but most of them expected a political deliverance from the Romans, to be able to take the Romans off of their back, to be able, they could look back and see uh, what they'd come from in the time of Solomon, where it was wealth and prosperity and victory in, in, in battle. They had such peace at that point in time, and they longed for that. And so they saw a, a kind of a military deliverer in that. So with that, let's open God's Word to uh, John chapter, oops, sorry, John chapter 1. Let's just pray before we do that. Father, we're grateful for your word this morning, and we simply ask that it will not return to you empty, but will accomplish what you desire and achieve the purpose for which you sent it. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read uh, John chapter 1, verses 29 and 30 together. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he is, was before me. So the idea of the Lamb of God, if you, if you read some of the different commentators, as they, they look to it and they say, what did that Lamb of God term mean? You also get a few different answers. Some see in it uh, the story in the 22nd chapter of uh, Genesis about Abraham and Isaac where God is testing Abraham, and he asks him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And as soon as Abraham is showing that he's willing to do that, God stops them, and he provides a ram for the sacrifice. So some people look and they see that in the Lamb of God, that God will provide the sacrifice. 
Some people look and they see the Paschal or the Passover lamb that kind of originated in the 12th chapter of Exodus, where God is executing the judgments on the Egyptians, the plagues, and the last one is he's going to strike down the firstborn of all the families in Egypt. But he says to the Jews that if you take a lamb and you slaughter it, and you put the blood over the doorposts of your house, you will be passed over. God will pass over that house in executing that judgment. And so some look and see the deliverance of God in the Passover. And the Passover would have been a very familiar uh, thought and sight to the Jews because um, there's a first century historian called Flavius Josephus who writes about the last Passover that was celebrated at the temple, which was destroyed in 70 AD. And he writes that over 256,000 lambs were slaughtered at the Passover then. So the idea of a lamb being slaughtered and sacrificed was something that was very familiar to the Jews. Some see it simply as the, the sacrificial system, which the lambs were a very big part of. And in particular, every evening and every morning, there was a, a burnt offering of a lamb offered at the temple. And so some look and see the sacrifice the sacrificial system. And in Hebrews 10, we read that that sacrificial system was really pointing to Jesus. It was trying to give us an idea of the sin and its consequence and that Jesus would be the perfect sacrifice and do that. But many also look at the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And so that's what we are going to turn to next. So I'm going to, Isaiah 52, the last part of it, Isaiah 53, is a beautiful portion of Scripture that talks about, it's really like a gospel in the Old Testament, that talks about Christ's sacrifice for us. We're just going to read three verses of that, starting in verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So that whole passage talks about a suffering servant. And the first question you want to ask yourself, really, when you read that, is why? Why did this servant have to suffer? And the answer is really found in verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That idea of we all, like sheep, have gone astray is really the idea of sin. We've all kind of gone our own ways away from God through sin. And if you really want to get a handle on it, you have to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Second and third chapter of Genesis. God talks about putting together this beautiful garden of Eden where he puts Adam first and then Eve later. And it's a place where he can fellowship and be with and have a relationship with his creation. And he sets one limitation on that. He says there's one tree that you can't eat the fruit of. And that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you'll probably remember the story. The servant, uh, serpent uh, deceives Eve. She eats the fruit. She gives some of that fruit to Adam. And so Adam eats it as well. So, so they both dis discarded what God had said. They both disobeyed God. And that's really the definition of sin. 
is a disobedience to God. And we find actually in Romans 5, verse 12, it writes, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, being Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. So this was kind of the position that we found ourselves in as a, as a mankind, was the fact that we had sinned and disobeyed God, and we faced judgment for that. And Romans 6.23 says the wages or the result of sin is death. So that's what we faced. And that's what the suffering servant had to come for. There's a story of a, of a king in a kind of ancient Greece area, uh, about 7th century B.C. His name was Zylucus. He was king of the Locrians. And they were actually credited with having one of the first actual sets of laws in that area of the world. And one of the laws that was part of that was that you, you couldn't commit adultery. And if you did commit adultery, the punishment for that was that you would have your sight taken away. You would have both of your eyes taken out. It was a pretty severe punishment. Well, one day, as uh, Lucas was presiding over the, the judging of people, his son was brought before him, and his son was convicted of adultery. And so this was a dilemma for Zalukas. On the one hand, he knew that he had to uphold the law in order for it to be effective. He knew that he could not show favoritism to, towards his son. On the other hand, he loved his son, and he hated the idea of having him blind and without sight. So his answer to it was he took one of the eyes of his son, and he took one of his own eyes out. And in that way, through his sacrifice, he allowed his son to still have sight. And that's not a perfect illustration of what God did, but it's, it's, it conveys some of that message. God was separated from man with sin because of, of what man had done, but he loved man. On the other hand, he was a holy God who needed to punish sin and have that consequence for there. And so what he did was he took it upon himself to pay that price. And that's what we talk about in Isaiah 53. If we look at verse 5, we said, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Romans 5.8 said that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's the story of the suffering servant. It's one where God satisfies by giving his son, the Lamb of God, for the sins of mankind. He satisfies the judgment and allows us to know him. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That was the purpose, to bring us to God, to restore a relationship with God. So Jesus, the Lamb of God, was born in a manger to die on a cross so that we could return to God, have a relationship with him, and have a new life. And that suffering servant was an unexpected surprise to the Jews. But that's not where the story of the Lamb of God ends. We still have the Lamb of God shows up in Revelation. 
But in Revelation, the Lamb of God is not the suffering servant. The Lamb of God is like the, the Lion of Judah. It's the king. It's the conqueror. It's the, the person who comes to, to really save everybody by restoring and judging. And in verse uh, chapter 5, we see the Lamb of God being someone who's worthy to, um, worthy to uh, undo the, the scroll. And, and the people worship him, and they give him praise for that. In chapter 6, we see him executing judgment by opening the seals. In chapter 17, we see him coming as this, this king and this warrior and defeating all of the enemies that he has. And so he comes as a lamb, but as the Lion of Judah. It's 28 times in Revelation that he is, Jesus is referred to as the lamb. But all of this... Is, is so that we can live with him. And I'm going to quote a fairly lengthy piece of scripture here in Revelation, second to last chapter of the Bible. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There were no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, come down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older things, order of things has passed away. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. And there's a couple of interesting things, and in the first, first verse there talks about there being no more sea. For us, that, that sounds kind of funny. I know I enjoy walking with my wife beside the ocean, and I think many of you probably enjoy boating or fishing on the sea. And so to us, the sea is something that is pleasurable and enjoyable. But it wasn't so much for the Israelites. They looked at the sea as being ominous and something fearful. They were not like the Phoenicians or the Greeks who were sea-going people. They feared the sea. And so God really says here, I'm going to remove that fear. And then in the last uh, verse that we read, God himself is the light. Jesus is the lamp. Jesus the lamb is the lamp. And Pastor Tom talked last week about the, the darkness and the fear that we have in the darkness. And when the light comes, the darkness is dispersed and that fear is removed. And so really sandwiched here is these two things where God says, I will remove that fear. Not only that, but there will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more crying. There will be no more mourning. And this is the life that the Lamb of God came to gave us. This is the hope of Christmas that we see. In 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 4, we read, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So Christmas is a season of hope. So the Lamb of God came to take away our sins, if we will accept that. And the Lamb of God came 
to give us hope. In Romans, uh, I'm sorry, actually in, in John 5.24, we read, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. That's our part in accepting what Christ has done, is to hear and believe in what Jesus has done for us. So, you may be here today, and you may not feel much like that hope is around. Um, on being on staff here, I see and hear a lot of the prayer requests that come out, uh, not only the ones in the emails, but also other prayer requests. I know that a lot of you are hurting in one shape or form, and that hope may not seem so bright this Christmas season. So if you find yourself in that spot after we've finished our service, I would encourage you to come forward, and someone will come alongside you and pray for you as you enter into this Christmas, Christmas day tomorrow. And if you are here and you do not know the Lamb of God, if you do not know Jesus in a personal way, He desires that from you. And if you would like to do that this morning, I encourage you also, after we've had our last song, that you would come forward and that you would allow someone to help you through that. And even if you want to just know a little bit more about Jesus, there will be someone here to help you through that. So as a benediction, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may be filled to overflowing with hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. Merry Christmas, everyone.